Welcome to episode 10, or episode X as we're calling it, nothing to do with formerly known as Twitter, social media platform, or, or Max. We just thought we'd mix it up a bit uh, and call it episode X because it's a little bit different. And it's a little bit different because I'm joined by a different guest today. Do you want to say hello and introduce yourself, Chris? Absolutely. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris. You'll have heard me. Um, if you've heard any other episode, you might have heard me at the beginning and uh, at the end of these episodes, uh, usually behind the scenes. But it's a special treat for me to be here as a guest today. So thanks for having me, Benjamin. Turning the microphones around. In fact, people have heard you in the intro of the show. But with now you're with your, your kind of talking voice rather than your best podcast voice. <laughs> Yes, yeah, a bit, bit more natural. Not quite got that radio vibe uh, that you might be more used to. So what we wanted to do in today's episode was to really do a recap on the whole of series one, um, having done our kind of first year of podcasting um, for Social Optic with the Work Together podcast, um, just to really pull together the different threads that our guests have talked about. And also, um, for you as a listener, this will hopefully give you an idea of perhaps if you haven't listened to the whole series yet, maybe which episodes you particularly might want to start with or dive into. I mean, how many guests do we have in total, Chris? Yes, I think um, we've had nine so far. So it's been a it's been a good run. Um, and yeah, for, for anyone that has... Um, been listening along and then this also might serve as a, as a good sort of summary of what you might have been learning along the way we certainly have learned a lot along the way with these guests from their experiences uh, and i think also fair to say we've learned one or two things about producing podcasts along the way particularly thanks uh, to feedback that we've received so thank you to anyone that's um, been in touch following listening to an episode and we'd just encourage anyone to to do that and a lot has been going on, not just the podcast this year, isn't that right? Yeah, um, I, we've, you know, in this whole thing, we've practiced our closed loop learning. So kind of observe or decide act uh, in in the process as we've gone along as well. And yeah, it's definitely been a busy year for Social Optic. We've grown the team, so we're now 25% more people than we were this time last year. Um Survey Optic uh, survey platforms available on a few more frameworks, and so um, it's now the kind of platform of choice for quite a few folks. And um, we've got a lot more uh, people coming on board using the platform to understand what's happening in their organisation and with their stakeholders. And we've also upped our game a little bit as well in the security domain as part of the Surrey Cybersecurity Cluster and also our initiatives. So we are now Cyber Essentials Plus certified. So we've moved the dial up on that and some new features in the product as well, just to help people be compliant from a security point of view and a GDPR point of view and really keep up with the changes of best practice there. And, and that's just a kind of few of the highlights. We've got kind of new user interface changes coming out and all sorts of other things. Um, literally hundreds of features have gone into the platform and there's more to come uh, in the remaining bit of the year as well. That's right. Sometimes it's hard to keep up with uh, all the changes and updates we're, we're making and we have to sort of take a zoom out to to really see all the, all the progress and it's um, beggar's belief sometimes. But uh, anyway, so speaking of zooming out, we're actually going to zoom out over the whole podcast series and just a brief recap across all of the episodes before we dive in. Um, where do we start, Chris? OK, so we kicked off with episode one. That was Steve Green. With accessibility in the digital world. And then episode two. Richard Mabry. Talking about culturalising technology. 
Then episode three with Matt Partevi discussing company culture, people experience, and remote working. Then episode four with Crispin Sachikonye. Talk about social value, leadership, and decision-making. Episode five. We were joined by Simon Bird. All about creative thinking in business. In episode six. With Alison Minns. He talked to us about culture, strategy, and change. In episode seven. With Anne-Marie Retrain. Discussing hidden networks and invisible systems. In episode eight. With Zelda Franklin Hills. Talking about well-being in the workplace. And episode nine. With Gene Russell. Discussing thrivable organisations. So nine episodes in total and quite a range of different topics there, but definitely some threads that ran between them, which is what we want to pick up on in this episode. Absolutely. And one question that keeps coming up in our discussions uh, has certainly been, how should we understand organisations? So We've got a few different quotes that that run through this, um, but I thought we'd kick off with uh, one from Chris Sachikonye. He brought a bit of philosophy to the discussion that got us thinking about society, people, and uh, what an organisation really is. So here's Chris from episode four. Uh, I think uh, Descartes had this idea that, you know, I think, therefore I am. In other words, as an individual, I'm complete and I exist just because I can think. So it's very individualistic. It's about me. There's an alternative way of looking at it. And these alternative ways, by the way, are right across the world. The one that I'm particularly interested in is the African philosophy of Ubuntu. And rather than I think, therefore I am, it's like I am because we are. In other words, because the community gives me permission to be, then I exist. Without the community, I don't exist. So there's a strong interconnection between the individual and the community as the community gives the individual the permission and right and privilege to act. In response or in return for those rights and privileges, the individual then has obligations and responsibility to those communities. So that interconnection becomes the source of the leadership's authority and legitimacy and allows them to be able to work. So some really interesting context there in terms of how communities and individuals operate together. So very much that kind of systems thinking, which is a theme through the podcast series. I also really love the ending about where a leader's authority and legitimacy actually comes from. And leadership, again, has been a big topic throughout the whole series. And in fact, Alison Mins in her episode talked a lot about leadership, too, and the importance of leaders walking the talk. Um, This quote from episode six. And I've got countless um, examples, some of which I, I probably wouldn't be able to go into, but um, but where leaders don't walk the talk, um, and the and the and the challenges that gives employees the dissonance that causes them is really difficult. I don't think you can be credible as a leader unless you are sort of role modelling and showcasing and, and setting the tone and the expectations for those for those behaviours your, yourself. So leadership, always a key element of any company culture. And we work with a number of leaders, which we often describe as uh, brave or grown up because they're willing and able to ask the difficult questions and get real feedback from their staff about how things are going. And sometimes asking questions about how they're performing as leaders themselves. Leaders are definitely important, but while leaders shape the organisation, 
also the structures and processes and the tools in the organization drive the behaviors as well. And Richard maybe joined us and brought some great insight into how other things like that, things like technology that we use, for example, can actually drive and shape and change culture. And the magnifying glass was really held up against this one over the COVID lockdown when we all went fully remote, fully digital. Check out this quote from Richard. And this person said that, you know, they've got a great company culture and then followed that by the but word. <laughs> and, and the but word was, we've got a great culture, but our email culture stinks. And at that moment, I, I said, if your email culture stinks, then you haven't got a great culture. Wow, that's uh, such a challenge and a great insight that culture doesn't only exist at the face-to-face level, but in all the other ways we communicate and, and interact with people. Like Richard said, that can be email, but of course, um, today, that also includes Microsoft Teams, Slack, diary management software, the list goes on. Speaking with Matt Partavi, he spoke about company culture, particularly when managing remote teams. And it's a really interesting perspective that he brought around how you can actually embrace the technology and culture and make the two things work together. And he brought an interesting idea to the table about the benefits of rituals, which is something we talk about from time to time. So these things that that you kind of build into the rhythm of the organization, particular ways of doing things. And in his case, he used a couple of rituals to keep a sense of connection with his colleagues. The first was a weekly all-company remote call. And People are probably familiar with those. You might even have that in your own organization. The idea being you've got something there to inform people, get people energized, reconnect them with the organization. And then the second one was what they call Friday shout outs, which was where anybody across the team could recognize people for their work. And that's particularly reflective of that company's culture and values. So, again, an interesting way where rituals can combine technology and reinforce culture. And he talked about that in episode three. So these two rituals, two of many rituals we have, act as kind of anchors so that while people have flexibility and are working at different times, they may not be connected physically. These are um, organizational constructs that help people stay connected, um, even though we're remote. But what do we get from a good company culture? Say we've embedded our rituals We have good culture across our different technologies and leaders are modeling it all from the top. Are there tangible benefits to an organization? Or turning that the other way around, organizations often think of problems like a lack of innovation as being a training or a structural issue. And the same can be said for a good number of things that we could begin to list out here. But Simon Bird, when he joined us, certainly thought that it was more complicated than that. And he talked about how it needs to be okay to fail and embracing failure, and that the way that people feel empowered to experiment and innovate drives the success of the organization. And that actually those things aren't just structural issues, that actually that ability to fail is very much a cultural issue. And he talked to us about that in episode five. I think you're right when you say about this aversion to failure. If you have that, and that's so embedded in your culture, then nothing will ever change. You'll, you'll spend all your time and effort focusing down on the predictability of what you have today and trying to make sure that you adhere to that. And, and the problem is the world changes. So you will be becoming less and less relevant and responsive to your environment. 
And as we know, that's Darwinianism, isn't it? That means in the end, it's extinction. So I think businesses need to be agile, adaptive. And I think this is one of the best ways that they can do that. Um, and, and as I said, it's it's all in our existing capability. It's not something you have to farm out. <laughs> I do love that quote, evolve or die. But that's such a good business reason to strive for good culture. If people feel safe and respected in their organizations, then you get the best from them. But the challenge of evolution and change can be complex to understand and certainly to manage. It can often help to use a framework to understand the complexities and map out the environment to give us half a chance to approach this stuff. Anne-Marie looks at organisations and wider networks as systems. Within that framework, we can begin to understand where we need coordination and autonomy to effectively change in response to our environment. So let's hear this clip from episode seven. It is possible to have autonomy with simultaneous coordinated control and flexing and changing among the different components, the different elements that make up the overall viable system. The viable system can be the organisation, it can be the organisation in an ecosystem, because of course now um, organisations don't function on their own. You know, if, if you look at healthcare, you know, we've now got these ecosystems of independent but connected organisations all sharing expertise, all sharing knowledge, resources, finances, you name it, to be able to produce something, you know, to, 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 to bring something to, to the healthcare market. It's critical to understand our organisations and the ecosystems they exist within. And as Anne-Marie touched on, many of these systems are only becoming more complex and interconnected. But understanding the system is only part of the challenge. It's also critical that the people within have what they need. People need to feel psychologically safe and it needs to be a healthy environment. That is an organisational responsibility. That's so true, isn't it, Chris? That organisations are people. You know, it's a it's a people thing, and whilst people view it as a as a system and sometimes as a black box, fundamentally an organisation is made up of people. So when we think about that, how far does that responsibility of the organisation stretch in terms of providing a safe and healthy environment? How far can an organisation reasonably go to improve not just the culture of the organisation, but actually the well-being of their staff as well? And Zelda Franklin Hills joined us with a really interesting perspective on that based on the work that they've done on well-being up at Five College. And we dived into that in episode eight. That whole boundary thing is a really difficult one. Um if I think about a person, though, a human being, well-being doesn't, there's no boundary in well-being when you think about that. Um, and so when I think about what we need to do as an organisation and as a college, it is for me, how do we support people perhaps to have some of those things, that conversations with people that they feel uncomfortable with? And, and you need to maybe offer a range of different things. Zelda goes on further to discuss the variety of offerings and initiatives that Fife College deliver for their staff wellbeing strategy. Though I have to say, the one that sticks out to me was creating spaces to talk about things people don't like to talk about. The example she gave was money. That's often a tricky topic among any group, but particularly between colleagues. It's definitely been a challenging few years for organisations and proof that an organisation isn't machine, it's a living entity. All sorts of curveballs thrown at us and thrown at leaders over the last few years. 
But moving from the more internally focused to looking outwards, I was interesting in our discussion with Jean Russell that she brought together those two ideas of, um, you know, moving from kind of machine-based, box-based theory for organizations into looking at things more in terms of not just a living entity, but actually ecosystems around organizations in that broader context. And interesting, that then actually loops round to things like how you manage risks and how you deal with risks as an organization. And there were some great insights in episode nine. And one of my concerns about the way that people face risk is they go, okay, so here's a scenario. We're going to have this happen. And then they design resilience to that particular problem. And the world is so full of those risks that we can just kind of keep biting off them one by one instead of going, what's the overall thing that creates our ability to adapt to any of these things that arise, right? And to me, that means being in relationship. Like resilience, uh, the best resilience strategy is to be in relationship because then somebody has the resource, somebody in the network is the person to call. Um, Not, oh, I've already pre-planned that approach to risk strategy is maybe a little hard to hear for some people. It's a little bit against the grain for those of us who like to fill out all of our boxes and map everything out with extreme detail and try and plan for every eventuality. But the reality is that any plan that's on moving, that isn't uh, responsive and can't adapt to risk is ultimately brittle, whereas actually relationships and the capacity that that produces has the flexibility to move and adapt as things change. And I think the thinking in that podcast are kind of moving up from just striving um, and being resilient to actually not just building in capacity, but building ways of working that actually create additional capacity is quite a, a game changer of how organizations can work. Absolutely. And uh, just really interesting approach to to strategy and you know, we, we heard more about the importance of strategy from Zelda. It's it's definitely been a theme working its way through the series. Uh, whenever we want to approach something in our organizations, whether it's creativity, culture, well-being, whatever it is, we need to be thinking of it at the strategic level. Uh, and we hear a bit more about that from Zelda back in episode eight. We were quite clear, as you say, you know, as you said, we were quite strategic in our thinking and why we wanted to do that. And then there's been other layers as we started to think about it that we've kind of brought in. So we knew, for example, that we that we would have more flexible working. So now we started to think about that in terms of smarter working and moving away from the binary choice that we were having of you're either at home or you're at work. So now with us, we're developing a game, thinking about, so, and how does that then support wellbeing? So that, for me, is the key thing in an organisation. What is it that we want to address? Why do we want to address it? And what do we want out of that? How is it going to help us to do the things as an organisation that we need to do? So it's interesting when you think about strategy and what the organization wants to do and needs to do, you come straight back around to culture because culture is really going to determine how those things happen and with what degree of urgency. So culture is strategic and strategy ends up back at culture. So we talked a lot about company culture and how that can benefit staff and organizations, but actually the impacts go much further than the organization 
itself is not just confined to the staff and employees and their productivity. How else can we actually understand organisations and their wider impact and what happens with strategy and culture? I think we can turn to Chris Satchikonye for some really eye-opening perspectives on that one uh, in episode four. Back then, the key stakeholder was the shareholder. So we spent all our life trying to understand how organizations can create value for shareholders. But over the years, particularly throughout the 20th century, there was a shift. The shift led us to understand that behind the organization is not just the shareholder, but there are other stakeholders who are just as important. Initially, this started off as just looking at staff, saying, what can we do for our staff? Because when we consider our staff's needs, we do better as an organization. We went beyond staff to suppliers and then to the wider community. So we're at the stage now where there's a general understanding and agreement that an organization has multiple stakeholders. And for each of these, we need to create some kind of value. This is something we've been really interested in for a while now, and social value really captures a lot of those values that we as an organization hold close. Looking beyond the immediate value to looking at steps beyond that, returning to flexible or flexible first working, to quote Richard Maybury, for example, that benefits the employee, sure, but it also benefits their families, likely their mental health and well-being. It goes so much further than the direct employee stretching out to greater society. Many of our customers use surveys to consult with and communicate with their external stakeholders when they're considering changes and new initiatives. And it's a really interesting perspective that that brings because it guides those projects at a much more strategic level because the wider impacts actually get taken into consideration and people feel engaged and consulted. They get given a voice, which is really important. But more than that, you get a much more diverse set of inputs for the planning and decision making. And yeah, I think wisdom of, of crowds is kind of well and discussed. And this is almost another version of it. So if you haven't come across wisdom of crowds, it's the idea that you know, if you ask many, many people for the answers, kind of the mean, the average answer usually gets you to the right answer. But there's another version of that, which is actually having input from a diverse range of stakeholders. And again, surveys really enable you to do this much more than face-to-face -face communication. People get to have their say, you get a broader set of inputs, and oftentimes they'll actually come up with ideas that you hadn't even considered or a different perspective on things, or you start to realize maybe they use a different language to describe it, or they've got some other angle to come to that with. So it really is a change for the organization when you start to look outside, not just at customers, but all of the other stakeholders who are impacted by what the organization does or can benefit from what the organization does. And making our surveys and the way we interact with people as accessible as possible helps us with that aim, really, to include as many people into that um, conversation as possible. And so one way we try and deliver social value is by facilitating accessible surveys to respondents making surveys more accessible to those with access needs. We ensure that Survey Optic is compliant with accessibility guidelines, but there's more to know than just the technical side. Design of content is also critical. Steve Green really opened my eyes to how far-reaching and broad access needs can be. Often I think about those with visual disabilities or learning difficulties, but he explained how everyone will experience temporary access needs, such as injury or environmental factors. Let's hear Steve Green in episode one. 
Also, anyone can find themselves temporarily disabled. So, for instance, if you're using a touchscreen device outside in the sunlight, uh, you'll probably need a higher colour contrast level to read it than you would do indoors, even though there's nothing wrong with your eyesight. Uh, something that's readable inside is less readable outside. And, uh, and then, of course, there will be uh, situations where perhaps uh, you've got some sort of injury or something and can't use a mouse, so perhaps you're having to use a keyboard to uh, navigate. Um, again, you wouldn't think of yourself as disabled, but you have a temporary access need. So that is how we think of it. So inspired by some of what Steve said, um, that led me to looking at something called the curb cut effect. Um, first observed in the US, curb cuts or drop curbs, as they are referred to in the UK, were first introduced to improve the accessibility of roads and pavements for wheelchair users. Unexpectedly, many other groups benefited from the change. Parents pushing buggies, runners, cyclists and travellers wheeling luggage, to name a few. The same is true for accessible surveys. Designing surveys so they can be accessed by those with access needs leads to best designed surveys for everyone, which tend to gain high response rates and have higher quality data. So for me, that actually brings us back to the discussions we had with Jean Russell when she was talking about thrivability and thrivable flows, that A, that you can do something and not just for compliance, you can actually do it so there's a bigger benefit and the idea of social value really encompasses that quite nicely but more than that that actually you can lean into change and I think for us that was a lot of the things around accessibility of kind of going beyond and moving with it seeing that change in terms of people's correct expectations on how people should be accommodated and the different kinds of accessibility needs that we actually wanted to engage with. They kind of pushed us and taught us and brought change into the system, but we were able to lean into that change and create something bigger and better from it. And Jean explored that concept again in episode nine. Change is always already happening. Um, and so the first one just feels like I'm burying my head in the sands trying to pretend <laughs> that I can stop it from happening. Like it's already, you know, happening around us. Um, and I find actually that thrivability is closer to I'm more consciously holding stable things that help me rather than just trying to batten down the hatches. Right. And so it's OK, the change is happening. How am I engaging with that change? Where am I welcoming change and where am I holding things stable? Um, and I think a lot here about Donella Meadows uh, work on changing in systems and that you want to manage the oscillation. Right. Too slow of a change, um, too slow of a curve. And you're having to do a lot of work to catch up and too quick, and now you're just changing in response to change, and you're not able to, to manage that flow, and so you create too much oscillation. And so when you're in a relationship with change in which you're being consciously engaging in how often are we um, examining this decision, not every day, you know, this level of decision-making happens in this phasing, and so we have a periodicity to it that feels solid and stable and helps ground us. 
but we're also, every time we're experiencing that period, open to changing the answer that we've come up with. And so it's it's a strange thing where the sustainable or, or survival is much more grasping on as if we could hold things tight, where thrivable is much more, how can I consciously engage in the flows of change that allows us to feel more stable, even as we're engaging in it? That's such an interesting thought to close on, touching on change, systems and strategy, really threading a lot of the ideas we've discussed throughout the series of the podcast and going some way to answer that question we mentioned earlier of how do we best understand organisations? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Work Together podcast. You can find the rest of series one in our podcast feed in your favorite podcast app. If you aren't already subscribed, search for Social Optic Work Together on your favorite podcast service. And if you found it helpful, don't forget to help others find the podcast by giving it a rating, leaving a review and telling others about the show. You can find out more from Social Optic on our website, socialoptic.com. If your organization would benefit from data-driven decision-making and you've got a desire to work better together, then get in touch through the chat box on the website, or you can message us on LinkedIn, or drop us an email, or even give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. We're always open to a discussion, and we can very quickly tell you whether we can help or not. Maybe our paths actually don't cross again for another decade. That's happened. Other times, actually, we've helped people step away from the cliff face and actually solve a problem that they thought was actually going to be insurmountable. We've actually been able to bring them the tools and techniques to solve that problem very, very quickly. And again, in the theme of survivability, not just solve the problem, but actually open up new opportunities for their organisation and help them get unstuck. Until then, you can also read more on our blog where we explore more of the themes we discuss on the podcasts. We'll be back with another series next year. If you have any feedback or suggestions for Series 2, please do get in touch. This podcast was hosted by me, Benjamin Ellis. And guested and produced by me, Chris Trim. Please check out the rest of the series and we'll see you in the next series.